Support for this podcast comes from Outdoor Supply Hardware, inviting listeners to OSHA's big anniversary sale celebration, May 20th through the 26th, featuring daily deals, $15,000 in giveaways, 20% off store-wide on Saturday and Sunday, and a lot more. Learn more at OSH.com. From KQED. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. All across the country, Republican legislators have been working hard to make it more difficult to vote. As their older, whiter base loses demographic weight, the conservative response across many states has not been to shift policies, but rather cut back on who can vote and how they can do so. Today on Forum, we'll check in on the tactics of individual states and deconstruct the ideology of minority rule that's migrating from the hard right into mainstream conservatism. That's all next on Forum. After this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. During the past year, state legislatures across the country have implemented restrictive voting laws that experts say will stop some voters from casting ballots. Efforts to protect voting rights and access at the federal level have stalled in the Senate. Meanwhile, California finds itself in the middle of a gubernatorial recall election in which a small minority of voters could decide the fate of the nation's most populous state. Governor Gavin Newsom won 7.7 million votes in 2018. If he's recalled, the winning challenger will almost certainly get fewer votes than Newsom then or this week and will be lucky to net one or two million votes. And that's to say nothing of radical gerrymandering and the Republican tilt to the Senate. Add it all up and a small minority of the country, whiter, older and less urban than the country as a whole, has a wildly disproportionate influence on the country's politics. To talk about the immediate post-2020 changes, as well as the long-run minoritarian project, we're joined by Ari Berman, national correspondent and Mother Jones, and author of Give Us the Ballot, The Modern Struggle for Voting Rights in America. Welcome, Ari. Hey, Alexis. Great to talk to you. Thank you. We also have Adam Serwer, staff writer for The Atlantic and author of the book, The Cruelty is the Point on the Line. Thanks for talking with us, Adam. Thanks for having me. All right, let's start with you. Um, Can you just read us in on the post-2020 flurry of legislation? You've been covering it really closely. What's going on at the state level to restrict voting access, and how much of an impact do we think it could have on electoral outcomes? Yeah, we have seen an unbelievable attempt to restrict voting access in this country, the largest rollback of voting rights in America in decades. You really have to go back before there was a Voting Rights Act to find this level of new voter suppression efforts. Uh, 21 states have enacted 52 laws to make it harder to vote in one way or another, whether it's making it more difficult to vote by mail or cutting back on early voting or making it easier to remove people from the voting rolls or giving new privileges to partisan poll watchers or even making it easier to potentially overturn elections. And of course, this comes after an attempt to try to actually overturn an election. So we saw a big lie by Donald Trump then become weaponized by state legislatures all across the country. And essentially, even though the attempt to try to overturn the election failed, the attempt to try to change voting laws to achieve the same or similar kind of outcome, rigging the rules ahead of time, as opposed to trying to overturn the election after the fact, that is succeeding. If you look at what's happened in places like Georgia and Florida and in Texas, how many states have changed their voting laws is very striking. And the fact that so many states have passed similar restrictions on voting in such a short period of time is also very striking. And is this just rolling through these legislatures or are Democrats able to provide some kind of resistance or get some sort of compromises in some of these very, very red states? In some states, Democrats have been able to smooth off the rough edges 
for example, in Texas, there were provisions to try to cut Sunday voting when black churches do souls to the polls, voter mobilization drives. Uh, that ultimately was taken out of the bill. There was a, a provision in the Texas legislation that would have actually made it easier to overturn an election results. That was eventually taken out of the bill. In Georgia, they wanted to do certain things like get rid of no excuse absentee voting and cut early voting. That didn't end up happening. So in some cases, uh, Republicans, uh, Democrats have been able uh, to prevent Republicans from doing the most extreme things. But they've been largely powerless to stop this because what Republicans can do is they can pass these pieces of legislation through simple majority votes. So all they need is a majority and they have these majorities and they don't care that the legislation is partisan. Uh, they don't care that it's not bipartisan. So there's a real, there's a real striking disconnect between what Republican state legislatures are doing, which is passing partisan pieces of legislation on simple majority votes, and what Democrats are saying needs to happen in the U.S. Senate, which is that you would need 60 votes to protect voting rights, and it has to be done on a bipartisan basis. Republican state legislatures don't have those rules, and they don't care about those rules. Adam Sir, we're uh, staff writer at The Atlantic. How much of these new rules or the set of new rules is a result of Shelby, the Supreme Court case that gutted the Voting Rights Act? I mean, a, a tremendous number of them are. I mean, that Shelby, the Shelby decision in which the Roberts Court uh, gutted a key section of the, the Voting Rights Act, without even mentioning, I'm, I might have what part of the Constitution it violated, um, led to a wave of voter suppression legislation all over the country. Um, and this second wave is is allowed by Shelby, but is really inspired by President Trump's um, insistence, false insistence, that uh, he really won the 2020 election and is rooted in an ideological belief that even if the president didn't win enough votes to win, that the votes for the other side are not really legitimate and should not really be allowed to count. And what this uh, allow, uh, what these voter suppression laws allow these legislatures to do is to make it harder for those constituencies that they don't think should be allowed to participate in the American political process, to make it harder for them to participate and therefore make it more likely uh, that the Republican Party will prevail. Yeah. Adam, I mean, maybe I have my history wrong, but weren't things like expanding mail-in ballots, a, a sort of bipartisan thing, even in the very recent past? I mean, yes, uh, it, it is not as uh, silly in a partisan way. It was not in the past, it was not as, uh, 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 there was not as much partisanship around voting. If you'll recall, in 2006, under President George W. Bush, uh, Congress overwhelmingly reauthorized the Voting Rights Act. It did not used to be such a tremendous issue, but what's happened uh, alongside um, uh, partisan polarization, we've had a lot of uh, racial pol polarization has increased, religious polarization. The parties are, uh, you know, the Democratic Party is much more culturally heterodox than the Republican Party. And as a result, um, it is a diverse constituency, cannot afford to pursue uh, voting laws that are targeted at the other side's groups because it, it, it draws support. You know, for example, you never see Democratic legislatures trying to make it harder for uh, white men with only high school degrees to vote. That's because they depend tremendously on those votes. Uh, even though high school educated white men tend to vote Republican, they still depend on many of those votes in order to get elected. The Republican Party, on the other hand, because uh, it is largely made up of white Christians, it can afford to uh, target other constituencies in this way and not worry about losing support. So uh, on some level, this is the product, this polarization around voting is the product of one of these parties being serving diverse constituencies and the other party not serving diverse constituencies. Yeah. Ari Berman, what is the nominal case for these things that conservative legislators are making? Like things like, you know, cutting back on the number of ballot drop-offs, drop-off locations. Like, what's the, what are they saying they're trying to do? Well, the, the nominal reason for them is election integrity. I mean, they've made the same argument in state after state after state that we are just protecting the integrity of the elections. And they've done a, a really ingenious thing, which they have raised doubts about the integrity of elections. And they have pointed to the doubts that they have raised as a reason to then make it harder to vote. So they say... Even if the election wasn't stolen, and obviously a lot of them do believe that it was stolen, but they say, even if we believe that it wasn't stolen, well, so many of our constituents believe that it was stolen, 
Therefore, we have no choice but to do this. That's what they said in Georgia, for example, that no matter whether you believe the election was stolen or not, the perception was out there and therefore they had to act on that perception. So instead of really combating all the lies that Donald Trump told about the election, they either stayed silent or embraced those lies because they knew it was going to be politically convenient to them down the road. That even if some of these Republicans didn't go along with the attempt to try to overturn the election or believe that Joe Biden uh, was legitimately elected president, they are still going along with this effort to make it harder to vote in their states because they believe that this is how they are going to gain some kind of advantage. And if you look at you know, things like mail ballot drop boxes, no one's proved any kind of fraud with regards to these kind of things. There's just a perception out there that this somehow benefited Democrats, and therefore we have to get rid of it. Even though things like mail voting, as you mentioned earlier, were pioneered in many states by Republicans. The Republican constituency is older and more rural than Democrats. Therefore, they need mail voting, arguably more than Democrats. So Republicans were just fine with mail voting uh, until Democrats started using it. And in particular, communities of color started using it in larger numbers, places like Georgia and places like Florida. And only then did they get rid of these things? So I don't take the arguments about election integrity very seriously because they weren't making these arguments about mail voting six years ago, four years ago, or two years ago. They only made them once Democrats started winning elections using mail voting. Yeah. So there's this whole menu of kind of vote, vote suppression techniques. Do we know which are most likely to actually stop votes from being cast or to reduce turnout? Or is it just sort of like pass everything and we'll hope that one of these things will stop Democrats from voting? Well, that's what's really interesting about the current set of new laws that have been passed. It really is the kitchen sink approach. There's a lot of different provisions making it harder to vote. A few years ago, you might have seen a voter ID law here or an effort to cut back early voting there or attempts to purge the voting rolls in other states. Now they're putting all of this stuff into one bill. So the legislation passed in Texas, in Florida, in Georgia, it has lots of different provisions that make it harder to vote. It, they require voter IDs for mail ballots. They cut the number or just wholly eliminate mail ballot drop boxes. They make it easier to remove people from the voting rolls. Uh, they make it harder to register uh, to vote. All of these things combined, I think they, they think will have an impact. And we don't know the eventual impact of it because a lot of these things are new. For example, mail drop boxes were a new innovation in 2020. And now there's going to be dramatically fewer mail ballot drop boxes in places like Georgia, particularly in Metro Atlanta. So I don't know if we necessarily know what the impact of one thing will be, but the whole genius of this legislation is that it's not just one thing. There's so many different provisions making it harder to vote that it's not necessarily going to just outright disenfranchise people. It's just going to raise the bar at every level in terms of how to participate. Yeah. We're talking about the rise in laws at the state level that limit voting access and voting rights with Ari Berman, national correspondent at Mother Jones and author of Give Us the Ballot, The Modern Struggle for Voting Rights in America, and Adam Serwer, staff writer at The Atlantic, author of The Cruelty is the Point. We want to hear from you, too. What questions do you have about the new voting laws being implemented at the state level? How should states expand or limit voting access? Give us a call now at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We are at KQED Forum, or you can email your questions to forum at kqed.org. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more Forum after the break. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We were talking about the rise in laws that limit voting access and voting rights with Ari Berman, national correspondent at Mother Jones and author of Give Us the Ballot, The Modern Struggle for Voting Rights in America, and Adam Serwer, staff writer at The Atlantic and author of The Cruelty is the Point. Adam, I want to talk about some of the ideological dimensions here. I mean, it feels to me that during the 20th century, the expansion of the franchise was really popular politics. Has that actually changed uh, or is it still popular to expand sort of people's uh, the number of people who can vote and um, and how they can vote? I mean, 
I think that if you look at American history, there are periods in American history where there is a belief that the expansion of access to the ballot would allow people who are not worthy to participate in American democracy to, to participate. And if you go back to the beginning, you know, there were, there were fairly substantial restrictions on the franchise, even for white men. And then you have the age of Jackson where, you know, white men, but working class white men, you know, get the ballot in mass. Um, but you have, you know, in the aftermath of Reconstruction, when black men get to vote, and of course, you know, black women still couldn't vote because women in general couldn't vote. Um, the, um, there, there's a, a sort of ideological doctrine that emerges that says, you know, essentially black participation in the political process pollutes the political process. And so the effort to exclude, to exclude black men from the ballot is presented as a kind of progressive democratic reform because it's gonna purify democracy. You saw some of that rhetoric uh, echoed in the debates over these state laws. I believe the Texas state legislature was actually rebuked for his use of that phrase uh, or the phrase purify the ballot. Um, mm. And I think, you know, Trumpism has, you know, created this idea that there is a set of Americans who are truly American. And then there are other Americans who are kind of not really American. And that is an ideological belief that justifies excluding people from the franchise on the basis of, of, of their identity. Um, and so I think when you see people, the, the sort of underlying unstated argument behind these laws is that, you know, American democracy has gone in the wrong direction because of the, the participation of these people who aren't really American and shouldn't really be allowed to participate in the same way as those people who properly reflect America's, you know, in their view, conservative heritage. Mm. And so we have these kind of very deep historical roots to this idea that voting access should be restricted to to some people. Are there new components to this ideology that says, like, actually, it's good to have a minority ruling the United States? I think yeah. I think that the um, they don't see that. I mean, to the extent that they see themselves as the minority, they see themselves as the legitimate representatives of the American idea. And so. Uh, you know, the fact that they might be outnumbered, you know, Donald Trump ran in three, uh, you know, in the Trump era, we had three elections, uh, we, we 2016, 2018, and 2020, and he didn't win a majority of the vote in any of them. But because of the structure of the American system, it allows a minority of voters, particularly if they're ideally geographically distributed, um, to make it so that one party can hold power. Um, and when you, to defend I mean, in some ways, I, I think it's actually uh, retroactive in the sense that the, the, the way that the Republican Party takes advantage of the counter-majoritarian levers of the American system to retain power elicits this justification that these votes, they may not have a majority of votes, but they have the right votes. They have the true votes, the votes of real America. And therefore, they have more legitimacy in representing with a minority of the electorate uh, than Joe Biden does, you know, representing, you know, a, a majority of, you know, some six, seven million votes. Ari right, Berman, do you see at the state level any of these arguments really changing or the ideologies underpinning them changing? Or is it really just kind of hearkening back to a pretty like bread and butter uh, devaluation of people based on, on their race and, and in some cases economic status? Well, I think what they're doing at the state level is a microcosm of what they're trying to do at the federal level, which is there are a number of institutions in America at the federal level that allow someone to get fewer votes, but win power. So you can lose the popular vote, but win the electoral college or in the US Senate, uh, Democrats currently represent 43 million more Americans than Republicans. Uh, but it's evenly split in terms of its political composition. They want to try to maintain those same kind of advantages at the state level. So for example, with partisan gerrymandering, which is what we're going to enter next. Right now, states are just beginning to draw new redistricting maps. With partisan gerrymandering, they can win fewer votes uh, in uh, key states like Wisconsin, but still have a political majority, or they can win slightly more votes, but have many, many, many more seats. And so whether it's Arizona or Georgia or Texas, uh, they are going to have a huge advantage when it comes to redistricting, which then insulates them uh, from a lot of 
pressure. I think that's one reason why Texas Republicans were just fine with passing such an extreme anti-abortion law or passing a law saying that you don't have to uh, have a permit or a license to carry a gun, things that are actually not popular even in Texas. Uh, but they realize that they're going to control the redistricting process. So they don't really care what popular opinion has to say about it because they're going to be able to surgically choose their own voters rather than the voters choosing them. And then you look at voter suppression. It's again an attempt to try to choose their own electorate, that if you look at places in Texas that are trending blue, like Harris County where Houston is, that's where they really targeted the voting methods that were so popular there. They got rid of things like drive-through voting and extended voting hours that were really popular uh, in Harris County. Uh, they uh, did things like prevented election officials uh, from sending out mail ballot applications. It's now a crime for an election official to send out unsolicited mail ballot applications. That was something that was also tried by Harris County. So it's just one way after another to try to figure out how to either get fewer votes but win more seats or, in fact, engineer your own majority, if a majority is actually required, engineer your own majority by basically trying to prevent certain people that would otherwise be the majority from being able to participate in the process. Ari, I think there's a sort of cynical point of view around, around gerrymandering, that it's just something that that politicians do. Is it? Is it truly asymmetrical and Republican legislatures have been willing to more radically gerrymander than their Democratic counterparts. It's certainly true that historically both parties have done a lot of gerrymandering and that you can certainly find examples of Democrats doing gerrymandering. Uh, but I think that Republicans have been more willing to do it more recently and they've been more ruthless about it. And they also benefit more from the fact that their voters are more spread out in terms of the ability to do it, whereas Democratic voters are more concentrated. But if you look at more recently, a lot of Democratic-leaning states have embraced things like independent redistricting commissions in California in Virginia, uh, in uh, Michigan, a lot of different states, independent redistricting commissions were pushed by Democrats, and therefore they're more comfortable with taking the politics out of redistricting, whereas Republicans have rejected things like that. So Republicans have more power at the state level than Democrats do, so they're in a better position to gerrymander, but they're also just more willing to gerrymander. I mean, certainly you have examples of Democrats gerrymandering, whether it's in Illinois or in Maryland or in New York or other states. States, but I think more Democrats want to take the, the politics out of redistricting as opposed to Republicans that have no qualms at all about it. And I think that the gerrymandering that's going to happen in the fall is going to be even more extreme than the voter suppression that happened and ultimately a lot more successful. We ultimately don't know the impact of changing voting laws, but there's a lot of data that shows just how much of an impact a very well-drawn gerrymander can have. Um, Gina, one of our listeners, writes, as you discuss Republican tactics to make it difficult to vote, be sure to discuss what Democrats are doing, too. In 2020, establishment Democrats worked hard to get the Green Party taken off of state ballots. The corporate two-party duopoly share an interest in silencing independent voters. Look at how the presidential debates never allow other party candidates to take the stage. And I'm sorry, I think I, I want to bounce this to you in the sense that does it make sense to draw that equivalence between what Democrats have done with the the left flank of the party and what's happening between uh, Republicans and Democrats across the country? I mean, I think regardless of, you know, it, it, the structure of our system makes it a two-party system. It's not a, it's not a thing that can be resolved by um, you know, it, 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 it's, it's something that would have to be resolved by changing the way our, our political system works to have a, a multi-party democracy. It's not something that can just sort of, you know, we'll decide to, a third party will get a bunch of votes um, and then, you know, we'll have a three-party system or something like that. The, the incentives against voting for a third party are so strong precisely because um, that's the kind of thing that can throw the election one way or another. Um, and, 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 and that I just, I think it's unlikely it, given the system that we have now that you're not going to see, you know, uh, parties trying to, um, enable third party challenges on, on, uh, against their opponents and prevent third party challenges against, uh, you know, within their own constituencies. Um, I, I, I don't, I just don't think that there's. Uh, it's really comparable in the same sense because it's not the same 
level of literally trying to prevent people from participating in the political system. How should Democrats be dealing with this, Adam, do you think? What what should be the, the playbook for trying to deal with these restrictions on voting access as well as these uh, extreme gerrymanders? I mean, to be honest, it, there's only one way to really deal with it, and that's through action on the federal level. Uh, and the Democrats have shown no appetite um, at least the, the center of their caucus has shown no appetite for aggressive federal action in defense of voting rights. Um, and so because of that, um, you know, th- there's, um, you know, we're just going to have to see, as Ari said, what impact uh, gerrymandering is going to have, what impact these voting restrictions are going to have. I will say that I'm not entirely certain that this is going to work out uh, the way that Republicans want it to work out. I don't think it's necessarily the case that they are going to, uh, you know, because coalitions change, parties change, um, people move. Uh, it's not, it, 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 it's true that they have a lot of data and they've gotten scientifically uh, very adept at gerrymandering, um, but I'm not entirely certain that it's going to work out the way that Republicans intend for it to work out. That said, there's no reason for the Democratic Party to simply allow the Republican Party to uh, do their best to try and figure out a way to violate their constituents' rights, particularly when some of those constituencies tend to be among historically the most vulnerable uh, Americans in our country. Um, And so there's lots of things they could do in terms of protecting voting rights at the federal level, uh, but that would require removing the filibuster from the Senate or at least altering it in such a way so as to exempt um, voting rights legislation or something like that. Uh, but uh, unfortunately, uh, you know, obviously Joe Manchin and, and Kristen Sinema have, have been unwilling to take that step. And they probably speak for some other more quieter senators um, in the Democratic caucus who also don't want to do it. Let's bring in our first call. Let's bring in Brandon from Foster City. Welcome to the show, Brandon. Thank you so much for uh, patience and taking my call. OK, so my page, I think a good counter to all of this would be pushing for a national uh, holiday a two-day holiday where all federal workers get a paid holiday. I mean, it's once every four years. We have a lot of other very relevant and valid holidays. Juneteenth just got passed as a national holiday. That enabling people to have a day off, I mean, if you really think about it, DMV registrations, they're not all done in like one short time frame. They're rolling. I mean, we should at least really, for something that's only that's so important and once every only four years, we should really have maybe even a week of rolling intake. So why that's not happening and why we don't push for that. Second, if I can, just ask your guest, um, get a grab bag of uh, wishes. I mean, I would put that, and that's even easier to do than, say, like, you know, packing the court or, uh, you know, the, getting rid of the filibuster. Other things that I think are really important, I think all this shenanigans done by the Republicans, and we, let's just be honest, it really is that, <laughs> could really be undone by pushing for, a, for voting to have a national two-day holiday. What do you guys think? Thanks, Brandon. Ari, Ari Berman, do we have uh, evidence about how well it works to give people time to vote? We have evidence that if you give people more time to vote and then you combine it with other things that make it easier to vote, that increases voter turnout. So, for example, when states have early voting and then they also have Election Day registration, uh, that can increase a voter turnout. I, I think an election day holiday makes sense, but I don't think it's enough. The whole concept of voting on a Tuesday in November, or in the case of Colorado or California, uh, a Tuesday in uh, September, um, doesn't make a whole lot of sense. We vote on a Tuesday in November for uh, presidential elections and for federal elections because that's when farmers used to bring their crops to the market in the 1800s. It's a totally uh, anachronistic system. Um, but I think that if you just gave people a few days off, that wouldn't be enough. I think we we need a baseline in the For the People Act. They have two weeks of early voting. I think that would be uh, something that would be you'd start there. Um, Some states could offer more, but I think if people can't register to vote or they don't have the right ID to be able to vote or their polling place has been closed or they've been purged from the voting rolls, well, then election day as a holiday isn't enough for them. Um, So I think you need a lot of different reforms to make it easier to vote. California has gone in this direction by doing things like having uh, automatic registration, election day registration, uh, lots of early voting, expanding access to mail-in voting. California is doing the kind of things that we'd like to probably see nationally in terms of states doing to make it easier to vote. Uh, 
Commenter Julie writes, although in terms of percentages, black voters are more likely to be negatively affected by voter restrictions, in terms of numbers, white voters are restricted more. This is not just affecting black voters. We, the people, must join together against this undemocratic movement. What organizations are working for voter rights? Ari? Well, there's so many organizations that are working um, from for voting rights from the, the longtime civil rights organizations like the NAACP and the NAACP uh, Legal Defense Fund to the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights to the Leadership Conference on Civil Rights uh, to uh, groups like Stacey Abrams Group Fair Fight, which is really active uh, in in uh, Georgia to groups that are working uh, on behalf of Latinos like MALDEF, the Mexican-American Legal Defense Fund. So there's no shortage of groups working on voting rights right now, and there's no shortage of attention uh, to voting rights right now. The problem, as Adam said, is that Senate Democrats are unwilling to change the rules to protect voting rights. They have the power to do it, but they don't want to use the power they have. And I think there's been a real asymmetry in terms of tactics, which is that Republicans have gone to every extreme possible to pass voting rights restrictions on unilateral party line votes. They have not been shy at all about using every procedural tool they have to make sure these voter suppression laws are enacted. But Democrats in the Senate are hiding behind procedure as a reason for why they can't protect voting rights. So it takes 50 votes in the states uh, to protect, to make it harder to vote, and they're changing the rules however they want. But in the Senate, Democrats are hiding behind the traditional norms, and they're basically using that as an excuse to do nothing. Uh, and so there, it's just really kind of amazing to me that the parties are on such a different page here when it comes to how to protect voting rights, because one party doesn't care at all that they're seen as partisan or doing it unilaterally, whereas the other party refuses to use the power they have to make it easier to vote. We're talking about the rise in laws that limit voting access and voting rights with Ari Berman, national correspondent with Mother Jones, you just heard, and author of Give Us the Ballot, The Modern Struggle for Voting Rights in America. And we're also joined by Adam Serwer, staff writer at The Atlantic and author of The Cruelty is the Point. What are your thoughts on the voting process in America? What should Democrats do to push back on voting access restrictions? Give us a call now at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We are at KQED Forum, or you can email your questions to forum at kqed.org. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more Forum after the break. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about restricting voting with Ari Berman, national correspondent at Mother Jones and author of Give Us the Ballot, The Modern Struggle for Voting Rights in America, and Adam Serwer, staff writer at The Atlantic. Um, Adam, I wanted to talk about another component of these efforts on the right to restrict voting and, and sort of inflect election outcomes. And that's sort of the pressure that's been put on election officials and and this kind of – in part, I want to talk about it because I feel like it does harken back to that era after Reconstruction where there were all of these kind of um, illegal efforts to restrict voting. Yeah, I mean, uh, look, the, the, I mean, we're, we're in a much different situation at the end of Re- uh, than the end of Reconstruction in the sense that a substantial amount of voter suppression that took place in that era was about direct violence. It was about terrorism. You had – armed vigilante groups that were trying to prevent black people, black men from voting by engaging in acts of violence against them. And so we're not in that kind of situation. What we have now is a situation where there is this ideological belief that it is justifiable to uh, prevent the other party's constituencies from gaining access to the ballot, but not um, in that kind of extreme way. Instead, it's, it's okay to do it through legislation, through gaming the system, um, and, and, and ultimately, this is a political problem, and it's not, it's not something that can be solved, uh, you know, by some sort, I mean, 
it, you can solve it through legislation, sort of, but ultimately you also have need legislation to be upheld by the Supreme Court. There's no easy solution to this problem beyond, you know, what the, the two parties both having a commitment to democracy and not preventing the other side's constituency from participating in the political process. Uh, and until we get to that point, we're, st- we're going to have this problem no matter what. I mean, Adam, that would suggest an incredibly bleak next few years. I mean, I think I, I, I don't want to be um, I don't want to make predictions about the future, but I found is that, you know, nobody would have looked at, at, at the inauguration in 2012 and assumed that Donald Trump was going to be the next president of the United States. Um, so life has a way of confounding predictions. Um, what I will say is that, you know, as long as there's not a political price for the Republican Party um, in engaging in disenfranchisement or, or, or an attempt to exclude uh, rival constituencies from the polity, Uh, Until they pay for that politically, it's not going to change. As long as they can continue to hold power by winning a minority of the vote and by convincing their own constituencies that their rights, their their very existence are at risk because of the political participation of other Americans who have different ideas about how the country should be, uh, you know, as as long as that is a politically uh, viable path to power, they're going to continue pursuing it. The only way for this to end is for the Republican Party to see its path to power through courting those constituencies rather than trying to exclude them. Ari Berman, um, one listener writes, the Democrats should fight deliberate gerrymandering by Republicans in states they control with a balanced amount of deliberate gerrymandering in states Democrats control to offset Republican gerrymandering gains. Is that something Democrats are doing? That's something that they might do in certain states. They might do it in New York. They might do it in Illinois. Uh, But in general, uh, Democrats are pretty distasteful of partisan gerrymandering. Uh, So they have embraced uh, things like independent redistricting commissions in a bunch of states to try to take the politics out of redistricting. Now, that has put them at a disadvantage. And you could argue that it was unilateral disarmament. Um, But that's what happened, which is that... Red states are plowing ahead uh, with really aggressive gerrymandering. Some blue states will do the same, uh, but also some blue states have tried to chart a different path to try to set an example that will be fair. And and I happen to think that gerrymandering is bad no matter who does it. So I am much more in favor of a nonpartisan approach than a partisan approach. I think it's really bad when there's uh, safe districts on both sides and no competition on either side uh, and politicians choosing their own electorates on on either side. So I I think it's bad for democracy writ large. And I think the answer uh, for gerrymandering to be more gerrymandering, I mean, it, it might work short term, but I think that's ultimately pretty problematic for democracy. You know, Adam was just saying that until Republicans pay a political price for trying to exclude other constituencies from elections, um, they're going to keep going down this road. Are we seeing anywhere that Republicans are paying a political price for this, or is it that the big lie of stolen elections and the small lies of voter fraud? are preventing anybody from any Republicans themselves from getting mad about what's happening with uh, voting access restrictions? Well, you could argue they paid a price for the big lie in Georgia by convincing so many of their supporters the election was stolen and rigged that they then didn't turn out for those critical Senate races. And that was one reason why Democrats won both races uh, in Georgia. You could argue that they faced some kind of accountability uh, after uh, the Georgia voter suppression law was passed when uh, companies said they would boycott the state and the all-star game was moved. Of course, they then made that into a whole nother culture war issue that they then believe benefited them. But I think ultimately what's going to have to happen is they will actually lose elections uh, because they made it harder to vote, and that will have a rallying cry, a backlash effect, which is certainly possible in the future uh, in places like Georgia, or they'll pay a price in terms of federal legislation will be passed that will prevent them from doing these kind of things. And I think ultimately that would be the better path because I think it's going to be very difficult to try to out-organize these kind of restrictions, to out-organize both the restrictions on voting and also uh, to out-organize the gerrymandering that we're going to see. If you said um, back in 1960 that black voters in Alabama should just out-organize poll taxes or literacy tests, that would have seemed pretty ridiculous. And of course, the restrictions on voting we're seeing now aren't nearly as draconian, aren't nearly as bad. Uh, But at the same time, there are moments 
when only the federal government can step in to protect people's rights. Adam has documented this very well. That's what happened after the Civil War. That's what's happened uh, during the Civil Rights Movement. I think we're at another place where there really is no alternative to federal legislation and the federal government stepping in to protect people's rights. Let's take some more calls here. Um, Can we go to Bess in Siskiyou? Hey. Hey, Bess. Thanks for taking my call. It's a fascinating show. I totally agree. The feds need to help us out. But, you know, this idea that Republicans think they can manage the vote, it comes down to a local level, too. I'm in a heavy heavy Republican district here, like 70 percent of the people, even though I'm in California, are Republicans. And they are messing with – I had to call a county clerk three times to get my ballot, which just came yesterday. I'm fully registered. I'm telling you the idea that you can mess with other people's registration and vote is is manifested not just at the national Republican level, but right here at home. And it's heartbreaking. Yeah, thank you so much for that, Bess. Adam, I I did want to ask you about this one. I mean, it it does feel like destabilizing the idea of elections entirely is an extremely dangerous path to go down. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a real problem. I mean, you look at there's there's a recall happening in California, virtually all elections now, Republicans are saying, you know, if we lose, it's because they cheated. I mean, well, look, if, if Democrats winning an election in California is, is not exactly unprecedented. Um, so, you know, what you have to understand is, again, these are expressions of ideological belief. They're not necessarily factual descriptions. And I think that people, um, you know, this is something that happened to a, like, grew to a, a, a sort of an absurd degree with Trump is that the point is not that what you're saying is factually correct. The point is that what you're saying is an ideological expression of your values. In this particular case, that democratic votes are illegitimate and so they shouldn't be allowed to win. It doesn't really matter what the numbers are. Um, they are, they, they cannot legitimately hold power and therefore any election that they win is a form of cheating. Yep. And I, t- I mean, I think what's intense about it is the sort of fractal nature of the way this is playing out over the country. You know, you've got the national level, you've got to happen at the state level. And then, you know, you've got people like Bess who are dealing with it, you know, just down uh, at the county level, too. Um, let's uh, bring in Libby in San Jose. Welcome, Libby. Um, I wanted to give a concrete example of how things how these rules may disenfranchise people. Um I, uh, I wanted to piggyback on the gentleman who was talking about um, how the Republicans only want certain kinds of people uh, to vote and other people are not worthy of it. Um, I have worked in homeless health care for 15 years. Um, and I uh, last year, despite COVID, we made a huge push um, with our, you know, with our system of care to register as many people as, you know, to help them get registered, as many homeless people as we possibly could, and to educate them um, about where they could vote and that sort of thing. Um, And, excuse me, they didn't know that they could vote uh, without an address. Uh, They can give a cross street for their address. Uh, They didn't know that they could vote if they had an incarceration history. And we were able to tell them, even if you have a felony, if you're off parole, you can vote. Um, And it was very, you know, there was a lot of civic empowerment there. Um, Also, homeless people have pretty chaotic lives, and they uh, may not be able to show up on one day to vote. And so for them to be able to have a week or 10 days to go in when they were able to um, really allowed them to be able to participate. These are American citizens. And they have, you know, a a unique view of what's going on in America. And they are predominantly people of color. And so these types of restrictions would exclude anyone uh, who is impoverished um, and, you know, struggling to make their lives work. Yeah. Thank you so much for that reminder, Libby. I really appreciate that. Just of what's at stake and and for who here. Um, All right, Berman, I, I wanted to ask you about as these restrictions continue to roll out. Do we pass at a certain point, a point of no return, where essentially there's nothing really that can be done? Or have we already passed that point of no return? 
You mean a point of no return in terms of the ability to fight it or exactly them to put in? Okay. Yeah. No, I mean, I don't think we've passed a point of no return, but I think it's going to be increasingly difficult to challenge these kind of things. uh, If the other side doesn't use the levers of power they have to try to fight it. So right now, Democrats are, are outnumbered at the state level. Uh, They are outnumbered when it comes to the courts. There's a conservative majority, not just on the Supreme Court, uh, but all the way down in the federal courts and also on many state courts. Uh, And so really the only lever of power that Democrats have to fight these things is the federal level. And they could lose that too, uh, because it's very likely that Republicans are going to take back the House in 2022 largely because of gerrymandering, but not exclusively. It's not a very good political environment for Biden or Democrats right now. And the the incumbent party usually loses seats. So they could lose the House. They could lose the Senate. Therefore, they lose their ability to be able to pass federal legislation. So if they can't fight it at the state level, if they can't fight it at the courts, if they can't fight it at the federal level, it becomes very difficult to figure out how to fight it. And we saw that kind of similar situation during the Jim Crow era, which is, you know, once states like Mississippi changed their constitutions to de facto disenfranchised black voters, it was very difficult, basically impossible to change it at the state level. And the federal government had a very waning commitment to try to do anything about that. And that's why Jim Crow lasted for so long. And again, we're not going to go back to that kind of era, but we could go back to an era in which voter suppression becomes the new normal, in which it's rationalized, and in which we have lower turnout elections with higher rejection rates and more people lying about the results and potentially even trying to overturn the results. And we start accepting that as normal when it really is very abnormal for a democracy to be functioning like that. Yeah. Adam, I want to ask you the same question. I just asked, sorry. I mean, it, it feels like if we're not at the point of no return in terms of having this new version of voting restrictions become just kind of the, the new normal, we're very close to that point. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, we're in a, we're close to a, a very dangerous feedback loop, which is, you know, if you can draw state legislative districts, for example, in such a way to prevent the other party from getting majority, then the politicians who get elected are not going to be responsive to all of their constituents. They're only going to be responsive to those constituents that have the power to keep them in office. Um, and that is like a kind of feedback loop because it compounds itself. If the other party cannot con- fairly contest elections, then it can't change the rules um, to make it to make them more fair, and therefore their constituencies become even less and less influential. And the legislators who who uh, get elected are non-responsive to their constituents' needs. And like that is really a sort of democracy feedback loop, whereas Ari, you know, as Ari described it earlier, politicians choosing their voters, um, that creates a sort of cycle of unaccountability that makes it very difficult um, for, you know, uh, democracy to function the way that it's supposed to, where politicians do things and the public gives them feedback or holds them accountable or rewards those politicians who do uh, what their constituencies want them to do. Um, and I, I'm not sure. And, and I think, you know, it, 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 in some ways it's less visible um, than the sort of Jim Crow era where, where those uh, restrictions were so tightly uh, based on race, um, where we could have a situation here where it's simply, you know, one party continues to win the majority of votes and the other party continues to win uh, votes uh, uh, within the lines that are necessary for them to win office. Um, And I'm not sure what democracy looks like at that point, because politicians themselves are not receiving the popular feedback that is required for a a system based on popular sovereignty to function. Yeah. You know, Ari, I wanted to uh, ask you one more state level question, which is just about that, that audit in Arizona. How do you how did you read that kind of wild situation? And when what do you think it portends, you know, after, say, the next elections after 2018? Well, I, I think 2022. Was, excuse me. Yeah, I mean, it was a mix of uh, PR. It was uh, in a, a lot of ways just another way to posture to get more money uh, to dupe more donors. But I think it's also had uh, some really real negative consequences, both in terms of how elections are perceived. If you just lose an election and say, we're going to take over 
uh, the voting equipment and bully election administrators and try to find evidence to overturn the election, that sets a very, very damaging precedent. Uh, and it's going to set a damaging precedent, not just in Arizona, where Republicans have already said we're going to introduce new restrictions on voting, depending on what we find here. And of course, they're going to try to manufacture whatever they think they, they need to find to, to be able to justify that. But also it's spreading to other states. Um, there are now reviews in Pennsylvania, in Wisconsin, Texas Republicans want to do one. Uh, and it just gets to this idea that we've been discussing this hour, that that elections are only legitimate when one side wins them. And that's completely antithetical to what it means to be a democracy. To be a democracy means that the losing side has to accept the validity of the elections or else you don't become a democracy anymore. And so I think the Arizona audit has been a total clown show and it's very easy to make fun of it because it's just been so deranged in terms of how it's uh, proceeded uh, with all the crazy conspiracy theories, but it's also very mainstream within the Republican party, within the Republican coalition. Otherwise Republicans wouldn't be taking this up in other states. And I think it's going to be something that's just, again, a routine part of the political process now. Just as Adam said, when they lose elections in states like California, where they're completely outnumbered, they're going to allege voter fraud. I think the same kind of thing is going to happen with these kind of audits, which is that they're going to do whatever they can to try to sow the, the, a lack of legitimacy in the system because they believe it's going to benefit them in one or more ways going forward. Yeah. We've been talking about the rise in laws that limit voting access and other wild things happening in state legislatures to try and throw more elections towards the Republicans with Ari Berman, national correspondent at Mother Jones and author of Give Us the Ballot, The Modern Struggle for Voting Rights in America, and Adam Serwer, a staff writer at The Atlantic and author of The Cruelty is the Point. Thanks to you both. Thank you so much. Last comment, MK writes, I'm an optimist and I believe we're in much more dire shape than we've ever been. The GOP have proven they'll use any means necessary, extra constitutional, patently illegal, building impassioned arguments based on demonstrable lies at no cost. Unless Democrats use every legal means possible and the filibuster, our democracy as we know it is over and without a fight. And with that, I leave you. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more Forum. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Did you ever wonder what it's like to live alone, hidden in the woods, not speaking to a single soul for 30 years? Or wander the desert, uncover a hidden well, and dive to the bottom of the deepest water hole for 2,000 miles? The Snap Desert Podcast takes you there with amazing stories told by the people who live them an original soundscape that drops you directly into their shoes. Snap Judgment. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.